Hello and welcome to Crime Time FM. My name's Paul Burke and I write about crime fiction. Today my guest is Paul Vidic, author of Cold War spy thriller The Matchmaker. But we also have a very special guest with us today, Tim Shipman. Many of you will know Tim as the chief political commentator for the Sunday Times. And needless to say, he's been kept very busy by recent events in Westminster. However, he's joining us today as an expert in and lover of spy fiction. And some of you may well know him through his work for Spybury. So we're going to be chatting about The Matchmaker and all matters spy fiction. The Matchmaker is set in 1989 in Berlin and is described by best-selling author Joseph Cannon as Cold War spy fiction in the grand tradition. Sarah Weinman in the New York Times said in her review, There's a casual elegance to Vidic's spy fiction, now numbering five books, a seemingly effortlessness that belies his superior craftsmanship. So let's crack on with the chat. Hello and welcome to Crime Time FM, everybody. Um, hello, Paul, and hello, Tim. Hi. Hello. Hello. Um, so, Tim, we'll start with you, please, if we could. Um, we're going to be discussing Paul Vidic's novel, and new spy novel, The Matchmaker, of course, which is already published in the US and is just out in the UK. Um, you're uh, chief political commentator for the Sunday Times, but you have a love of spy fiction. Tell us a little bit about that, please. Well, have a look behind me. That's pretty much all spy fiction. So, um, yeah. Well, it's an I mean, audio like lot... podcast, but for the listeners, there are Apologies. an awful lot of books behind him. Yeah. Um, I mean, like a lot of people, I got started with James Bond in my teenage years and yeah. graduated to the sort of poppy novelists like Craig Thomas and Robert Ludlum and those kind of people. And then um, my mum had put me off John le Carre telling me it was terribly complicated. And then I tried some and realised it wasn't complicated. It was just totally brilliant and worked my way through a lot of the greats. And the great thing about spy fiction is there's quite a lot of it out there and you can, you know, once you've read all the Carres, all the Daytons, um, you can start to dig a bit deeper into some of the more obscure stuff and it's great. Um, but one of the great pleasures for me at the moment is that I think we're in a new golden age of spy writing and there's lots of new people to discover. And Paul is one of those people who I've been absolutely thrilled to discover over the last year um, with some of his recent works and then going back to read the earlier ones Um you know, there's some really, really good stuff being done, some of it historic and some of it contemporary. And, you know, I think uh, we're living in pretty interesting times for spy fiction. No, that's absolutely true. We'll certainly dig into that a little bit. One thing I did want to ask you, though, is you've recently compiled, or you're in the middle of compiling, in fact, a best authors list of uh, spy writers, which are ranking. How's that going? Well, I'm up to about number 30, and it's getting quite tricky now. Um, <laughs> there's lots of people who think I've got some people too late. I mean, the main takeaway is that with spy fans, they want about 50 people in the top 20. So, yeah. you know, everyone has to go somewhere. Um, but we're at 30, and we still haven't reached Mr. Vidic. So uh, uh, there's quite a few contemporary authors uh, who still haven't had a showing. Yeah. Charles Cummings, Simon Conway, Henry Porter, Paul, um, all still to come. Um, and I'm looking forward to upsetting a few people with my top 10 as well. <laughs> yeah. Can I, can I send you my quibbles when you get to number one? But this is the point. I mean, you know, you do an exercise like this, it's supposed to provoke discussion. I, you know, and I've yeah, done a list sure. of people I haven't read as well. Um, just so people know who's not going to be in there. Um, because you can't read everything, uh, even though I'm doing my best. Um, no, you certainly can't. And as you pointed out, it's a golden age now. Yeah. A bit of a spy revival, isn't it? Paul, you're in the top 30, so that's a good start, isn't it? 
Well, it's been a pleasure to read um, the 30 to 120 because what I've discovered is Tim is, is got this vast knowledge about the genre, which mm. I don't think I've met anyone who has uh, the knowledge you have or has read as broadly as you have. And I've discovered uh, a number of writers on your list. In fact, I've bought three or four books because um, these are people who fit into the genre in some context, historical context or contemporary context. And as a writer in the genre, uh, I feel an obligation um, to know their work. Um, so I, you know, I'm delighted you're doing it. <laughs> and I'm sure that you're under a lot of pressure. <laughs> You'd be amazed how uh, so many people have sent me books <laughs> sure. for your consideration. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they have. So, Paul, let's start with uh, The Matchmaker and, and tell us, a, this is your fifth novel, in fact, your fifth spy novel, and it's nice to see that George Mueller gets a bit of a look in. I mean, your novels have taken the CIA from the uh, 1950s through to now in this novel, which is 1989. Tell us a little bit about The Matchmaker, please. Uh, as you said, it's set in 1989 at the fall of the wall in Berlin. And each of my novels has gone f closer in time to the present moment, uh, mm -hmm. 53, 59, 85, um, 75, now 89. And it, I never intended to do that. But in some ways, I'm following the trajectory of the Cold War, which I lived as a young man, as a child, and, you know, and that has been interesting to me. And when I finished The Mercenary, which was set in Moscow in 1985, I said, okay, what's next? And, um, and I was drawn to Berlin, um, partly because Berlin, more than any other city, uh, represents you know, 50 years of spying mm -hmm. from Kristallnacht in 1938 and in World War II up until the fall of the wall. So in some ways, when you're writing a spy novel, at some point you have to confront Berlin. You, you have to be in Berlin because that's where the spies are. Um, and, uh, and, and, and I sort of start a novel by thinking about setting place and and what it is that motivates a person or a spy to be in a particular city. And in the case of Berlin, that's not a hard question to answer because there was all of this um, intrigue. Uh, this Berlin was the front line between the Soviet Union and the, and the United States, the West and the East. Um, and so for me, the question was, which Berlin? The Berlin of the Allied uh, occupation and the early 50s, or the Berlin of the wall going up, or the Berlin of the fall of the wall. And I chose uh, Berlin in 1989 after reading uh, the autobiography of Marcus Wolf, who was the uh, head of counterintelligence of the Stasi. Brilliant man, um, and a clever man, and unusually um, respected by his uh, adversaries in MI6 and the CIA. So in some ways, he was cleverer than the people who were on the other side. He just happened to be on the losing side of the Cold War. But if you read his book, the thing that strikes first is that he um, developed tradecraft that was very unusual and probably smarter, cleverer than 
things that were done by his adversaries. And among the things he did is he turned what you know has been used as tradecraft for many, many decades, sex, and turn it into love. Mm. And through that, he created this thing called the Romeo Network. And when I read that, I said, that's an interesting premise for a spy novel, to use love and deceit and betrayal in a marriage as the basis for an unfolding of events. So that's how I, the long-winded answer to how I got to the, the novel itself. It really is fascinating because I don't think this is something that's been tackled much in fiction and spy fiction. Um, Tim, you wanted to ask some questions about the genesis of the novel. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a fascinating period to set a book. It was the kind of those kind of events that first made me want to be a journalist, and you took us there very atmospherically. I mean, I guess I'm intrigued by how you actually go about it, Paul, once you've got the, the main idea. Um, you know, what's the structure of your year? How do you plan a book? Do you know how it ends when you start it? Do you plot the whole thing out? Or are you one of those people who sets off with the kernel of an idea and lets it sort of maturate as you're writing? How do you go about it? Uh, well, I, I start with the the place um, setting. And, and once I got that, then it was a question of doing a lot of research to be comfortable with the story. And, and, uh, I probably do six months of research uh, before I actually begin writing. And that research is often reading um, biographies or autobiographies of men in intelligence during that period. Um, Or in this case, um, reading the stories about East Germans who had been victims of the Stasi um, surveillance, uh, just to create a sense of who these people are because I do start with character and I have to get into the heads of the people, either the victims or in the case of the Stasi, those who are in charge of surveillance. And uh, once I have done the research and in the process of doing the research, I create outlines and take notes and, and all those little details that end up being important in the novel. And I begin creating dossiers on each character. And the dossier is, who is this person? Where is she from? What motivates her? What are her yearnings? Why did she end up in Berlin? Uh, What's her religion? What type of liquor does she drink? What type of liquor doesn't she drink? And it's a little bit like everything I need to know about the character becomes part of the dossier, even though much of what I know about the character never ends up explicitly in the novel. And it's sort of like you need, you know, things about people when you describe them. You don't describe everything you know. You describe enough to give the impression that you know stuff, but it it conveys who they are by virtue of the things you choose to say about them. And it implies a whole other world of knowledge. And I, I get there by, you know, just diving into these characters and then I begin an outline of the book. I have that story, but then I create a chapter by chapter outline. And I sort of know where the end of the novel will be. Um, but typically when I start writing after six months of research, uh, what I have is this North Star, which is sort of where I expect to end up. And I do have the chapters as a guidepost. 
But it's often the case that in the midst of writing, uh, the character begins to assert herself or himself. And there's a free agency that takes place. And I'm surprised sometimes by where the characters decide they, they need a chapter to go or what they do in a particular chapter. And that that's sort of, I can, I can free myself to that, to the, the character because I sort of have a structure in which I'm working. So I'm one of those writers who likes structure and then likes the freedom that the structure provides. Um, and so I never, and it may be that I'm just sort of, uh, you know, scared, <laughs> scared of the blank page. So I figure out a lot of what I need to put on the page before I actually start writing the page. But inevitably, you know, I do probably four drafts by hand, four complete drafts. And each time I go over a draft, I, I deepen something about the character. I deepen something about the story. It's a little bit like painting. You know, the, the best painters will work the canvas. They'll paint, then they'll paint over, and then they'll paint over and over. And out of that process comes, you know, a visual image that, you know, is true to the vision that the painter has. And in some ways, that's my process with words. Sentences start sort of as rough drafts. And then working the words and working the, um, the sentences just refines the, um, the language. And to me, language is a really important part of the novel. You know, I like to say that people read novels for the story, but they reread the novel for the language. Mm. And I think that's what you do really well. As you say, there's a lot of depth there, but with um, without necessarily drifting into sort of too much elaborate writing it's quite it's quite stark and simple but there's a lot of depth under it and you wear your research quite lightly as well I assume there's a bit where Anne is in this book going over the what the has happened to some of the other women I presume that sort of emerged from the research but you crammed probably you know 100 pages of research into half a page of uh, of writing and I you know it, it felt to me like that was you know, well, you're least. absolutely right. You're absolutely right. I, I have, you know, my outlines can be 150 pages, single spaced, uh, but right. <laughs> which can be longer than the book itself sometimes. But I do, uh, I do like economy in language. Uh, I like economy in storytelling. And sometimes I reflect on the books that I like best. And they tend to be under 300 pages long. You know, I think of Graham Greene, uh, you know, his the, the books I like best tend to be his shorter books. Um, and I think there is a tendency in books today to, to sort of be a little bloated. In my case, I can't seem to write a book longer than 70,000 words. <laughs> but within those 70,000 words, a lot goes on. Um, the, uh, you know, The Great Gatsby, one of my favorite novels is uh, not a long novel. Um, and yet it's a powerful novel because it goes deeply into the character uh, of Jay Gatsby. Mm. And, and the, the storytelling is brilliant. Um, and, and so when you ask people whether it was a long book or a short book, you know, they, they generally will tell you that, you know, it's a, it's a rich book deeply written but it's not a long book 
And what in terms of your daily routine, Paul, just quickly, are you a morning owl or a night owl or do you plough on all the way through? Or? Well, when I was working in media, I, I would try and write at night because that was the only time available. Right now I wake up about seven o'clock and I write for four or five hours every morning. Um, so I'm a, a morning person. And then I read in the afternoons uh, and like everyone else, stream television shows at night. <laughs> yeah. And we're, we're fortunate to have a whole lot of wonderful television these days. And interestingly, uh, a lot of it is spy related. And uh, the Israelis have done some great jobs. The French have a great series. Uh, the English, you know, spy Television has been a you know big part of the BBC's repertoire for a long time, and the Americans had a good year yeah. coming ahead with the Ipcrest file coming mm. and um, the Mick Heron books making it to screen as well. So it's a lot to be excited about. A lot to look forward to. I hope and, actually at the end we can and, do a, a few recommendations for people, and if it's books and film and TV, that's great. But as we are chatting about the TV, let's keep on that theme for a minute. Yeah, and it's it. I think it represents a. A strong, I'm not sure it's renewed, but a strong interest in spy stories. And Definitely. it's a, you know, it's what you were thinking saying, back 30, 40 years, you know, they were not, those stories were not as popular. Um, certainly not as, uh, as broad based as they are now. Um, True. Well, I mean, we mentioned Ipcris file, which will be coming up very shortly. Um, the, the, the thing for us, knowing the film, knowing the book, is whether it will be able to get out from under that. Uh, for other people, it may be a brand new experience. It'd be interesting to know what somebody who isn't familiar would make of that. But you also mentioned there um, Israel, uh, where you've got Fowder and Hit and Run, which is an Israeli-American cross, um, and the, the Bureau, the French one, you know, so right. that there is some truly great stuff out. Well, you know, it's, um, there's always a danger in taking a book and making it a film. It's often that the best books don't make great films. And it's often that mediocre books can make great films because they're different media. Mm -hmm. And the, the script writer and the director have to um, find a way to tell their story in the unique media of film that um, you know, makes it different, special, unique in its own right. Um, and I think uh, being too faithful to a good novel can also kill, you know, the, the good novel. I'm thinking of mm. Red Sparrow, which was a uh, right. Jason Matthews, just a brilliant book. Uh, but I thought it was a terrible movie. Um, and, and it's because they didn't really know how to take the essence of the novel and turn it into the essence of a good film. Mm. That's an yeah. interesting. I point. mean, you look at Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which told the story on film in about a third of the time that they did in the BBC miniseries, and it still worked because they took the key elements and spun some new stuff, devised a brilliant party scene where much was revealed, and you know that was a clever piece of filmmaking to tell the same story. That some people got upset about some of the the casting, but it it was a different you know, a different expression of the same story. And you can have three or four different expressions of the same story if they're all 
allowed to breathe in their own space, it seems to me, and, you know, uh, rather than just doing a sort of faithful adaptation. Um, but Fowler, that you were talking about, Paul, I think mm. you know, that's as good as I've seen uh, in recent years, since probably since The Wire. That's probably the best thing I've watched. Um, and on the Spybury Facebook group, you know, most people would say the Le Bureau is the best thing they've ever watched. Um, yeah. I'd check yeah. in Sandbaggers as well as, a, as an old favourite, but uh, yeah. Yeah, Sandbaggers, definitely. Funnily enough, that's one I only caught up with in the last couple of years, and I can't believe how good it actually is. Brilliant television. That's an interesting point. Um, going back to that, because I'd like to say to people, we're going to talk about Berlin. Just before we do, for one moment for the listeners, just to ask them, would they think, what is in your mind when you conjure up an image of Berlin? I mean, is it the spy city, the city of Spandau and uh, the wall? Checkpoint Charlie and those images we have of the Cold War that come from some of the old films and obviously that we, we love from the books. Is that what's in people's minds when they think about Berlin? So, Paul, and we start talking about Berlin because Berlin is, is your central uh, starting point for the book, Paul. You did say to me before, though, that there were four kind of iconic places, crucibles of the Cold War, uh, where spy fiction is set. And that was Beirut, Moscow, Berlin and Hong Kong. You've been to Moscow, you're in Berlin now. What is it about Berlin? What are those things that make it the nexus of the Cold War? Well, it, it was the, um, the boundary between East and West. It was where the Soviet Union and the Allies confronted each other mm. uh, on a daily basis. Uh, and through the 50s, there was no wall. Um, and of course, where you've got two enemies or enemy groups confronting each other, you've got spies. And so the spies were there in abundance. Nikita Khrushchev called Berlin a swampland of spies. And uh, Joe Cannon will say, well, why do you write about Berlin? He says, well, that's where the spies are. So um, it, in some ways, that, that, be, that became the draw. Um, and Berlin itself was this city of contrast. Um, even before the wall went up, you had East Berlin that never really recovered um, from the war. Uh, one of the things I noted was that in East Berlin, um, the trees were never replanted in the first 20 years, 30 years after the war, but they were planted in West Berlin. And you had uh, an economy in West Berlin that was richer, more robust. And so, you can cross the wall and you would see a difference in color. The people in the East wore brown and gray and black. The people in the West wore you know, green and pink and red. And that sort of visual impact had a big impact on if you were going between the two cities. And, and underneath those superficial representations of the city, was a, a deeper sense of difference of mood, uh, difference of identity. Um, in Berlin, by the time the wall fell, or in East Germany, um, the Stasi employed 100,000 people. There were a million people who were informers of family, friends, colleagues. One in seven East Germans was in some way involved with the Stasi. It was a premier surveillance society. And in the West, you had none of that. And so the, the, the effect of that sort of pervasive surveillance is fear. And what you 
found at the end was that the fuse of social unrest came from this oppressiveness in the city. Whereas in West Berlin, it was a mecca for youth. The West German young men went there because you could avoid the draft. And then a music scene developed. And with music came sort of this, this robustness, this, this life, this um, sense of freedom. And so you had this very stark contrast between those two, those two cities. And that was an interesting, um, for me, a very interesting place to set the novel. And I try and create that sense of division between the two cities. And for me, Berlin itself becomes a character mm. in the novel. As a reader, Tim, do you sort of, um, are you at home sort of when you get to Berlin? Is it sort of, does it feel right, the right kind of territory? Yeah, totally. I mean, there's Vienna as well, to some degree, for the same yeah, interesting the point. Divided, a divided city. But I think uh, it's it's always intriguing to go somewhere else. And, you know, one of the Lucares I love best is the Honourable Schoolboy, precisely because it's different. But right. when you're in Berlin at any time between, you know, 1950 and 1990, that's kind of the sweet spot. It's And, and you want to see what you're author is going to do with that canvas because everyone gets to play on it and some people do it better than others and the ones who do it best do precisely what Paul was talking about which is that they make the city a character and you mm. smell and see and feel that you're there and you feel the emotions the, you know that some great stuff was released non-fiction after the fall of the wall with people going back and opening their Stasi files yeah, and right. working out you know um I remember one bit of the file, which was a book I read that, you know, someone worked out that an ex-boyfriend had been informing on her and uh, had always had the window, had the curtains open when they were making love. And, you know, she was then wondering when she saw the file, did that mean that, you know, he wanted me to, you know, someone was watching and mm. working out stuff like that after the event. It's something that most of us in the West can't comprehend. It's, uh, But equally, you also look around and you see your neighbours and you think, well, you know, we're not so very different. Um, who would who would have been doing that here if, if life had been like that? And, and it sets up those sort of running moral questions, which I don't think, you know, which makes spy fiction much deeper and more important than a lot of genre detective fiction. It's sort of seen as... Uh, too much of it is seen as guns and action and um, and it's all a bit sort of silly. But actually, good spy fiction is profoundly about morality and, you know, not just about betrayal, but about the human response to extreme circumstances. And that's what I think makes the best of it, uh, you know, including Paul's work, very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Paul, I mean, I'd like to, to read a quote from Graham Greene uh, just on that point. Um, Graham Greene is a, a you know, one of my favorite novelists, a brilliant novelist, a novel, a novelist of character. Um, but he wrote in um, his um, memoir, Ways of Escape, he comments on the human factor. And he, what he said was, I wanted to present the service unromantically as a way of life, men going daily to their office to earn their pensions the background much like that of any other profession where the bank clerk or the business director 
have an undangerous routine and within each character, the more important private life. So he's writing there about Morris Castle, who he uh, is, a, is a character who defects to um, the Soviet Union. He's involved in a murder. And the book is about conscience. It's about morality. It's about betrayal. But even though it's a spy novel, it really is a novel of conscience. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think a lot of, not a lot, many of the writers who choose this genre, Le Carre being one, Joe Cannon being another, do it because it, it is, as you said, Tim, uh, a genre in which you can explore the humanness of moral choice um, in a way that you can't in you know, certain other genres. I really like that phrase, the novel of conscience. We're starting to get to the heart of um, what it is about literary spy novels that makes them great reading. I want to talk about character and motive in your book, Paul, if we could, please. It's about the idea you've expressed that political situations determine character. Can you tell us what you mean by that? Because I think that starts to set up the debate we're going to get into, which is obviously about literary spy fiction. Yeah, the the my characters... Um, are confronted by in a historical moments. Um, and I do try and use, you know, both the setting as well as the historical moment to allow character to develop and, um, and reveal itself. Um, and in the case of the matchmaker, I, I specifically chose a, a woman who is not part of the CIA, but is a victim of the CIA. And, and I sort of had to go there once I decided to uh, write a novel that was based on the Romeo network. Um, but so she's outside of the CIA, but she is drawn into it and is and becomes sort of a, an unwitting collaborator. Um, and at the end, she sort of turns the tables on the people who are manipulating her and end up delivering, delivers her own form of justice. Um, but again, it's the, the setting, which was the end of the Cold War, the, the, the drama around the Stasi, what they knew, the channels of intelligence from East Berlin to Moscow. Those become were very important uh, at that moment in time, and and that's sort of the backdrop mm -hmm. to the personal choices the characters make. But I think the the historical backdrop, the context, uh, for me, is an important part of of the novel. Yes, it's often in the reactions to situations where we learn the most about people. Uh, Tim, you wanted to talk about um, well, one word here, terroir. Paul, one thing that struck me, uh, I listened to a recent comment, uh, recent conversation you had with your friend Joseph Cannon. Um, you made two interesting comments. One was that he said to you when you were starting out that character is all about dialogue. Um, it's not about description. And the other was that you talked about this sort of hinterland of characters having a terroir, like a good wine, you know, the earth from which they emerged. And I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about how you go from that initial idea of a character to sort of rounding out those notes that you talked about earlier. How, how do you fill out that terroir? What's, what, are you, what are you smelling for? Dialogue is, is so important. You know, I, to, to repeat what Joe Cannon said is you have a character 
say something. And through their speech, you recognize a great deal about them, much more so than if you were to, you know, describe them at length, because that sort of blizzard of words doesn't leave you with a distinct impression. Whereas a few words, spoken words, can be very enlightening about who a character is, either the, the, what they say or how they say it, the inflection, um, even the accent. And, and so one of the things that I do when I, through this rewriting, is I find a way to give them dialogue speech that illuminates who they are and uh, without having to say who they are. Um, and it's in some ways, it's if you go to the theater, you realize that everything you know about the characters on stage, Hamlet, whoever, Ophelia, is all through speech. There is no description. Mm. And, and I have written uh, some bad plays that were part of a course I once took, but the, the exercise of having to, to tell a story and to describe people only through their speech uh, is a great exercise. And you realize, in fact, it's the way we understand each other. You know, we don't, I don't, I don't have a dossier on either of you that I <laughs> read before, you know, we encounter each other. We have this conversation and through the conversation, I know a little bit about you. Um, so that, that to me is a very important part of how you convey character and how you convey character economically. Um, a few well-chosen words or speeches reveal a lot. Um, and, uh, and so that's important. And, you know, the, the question of, of where does the wine come from? You know, if you, if you are a, a, if you like wine, you recognize that there is a certain place where the wine is grown and it's, um, there's a winemaker who has his special techniques and that's known as terroir. So the same is true of people. You know, I was born in a particular place, traveled around and I developed speech patterns through, you know, where I was brought up and who my parents were. And if I can try and capture some of that in my characters, it reveals a lot about those characters. Again, it's, it's sort of like what you see in the book is the tip of the iceberg about the character. But it's that tip of the iceberg that illuminates what you don't see. Um, and in some ways, it's like Hemingway once said, you know, most of what the reader needs to know about your characters is actually not on the page. It's the spaces between the paragraphs between the words, which reveal sort of the depth of the character. And so speech is one, one clear way of developing that, that sense of uh, place, that sense of background, um, which I think is critical for somebody to come away thinking, well, that's, you know, that's a character I, I empathize with, I can believe in, I can uh, sort of feel for. And I think with Anne Simpson, you sort of she does come across as a little bit sort of snippy and snappy. But then you think about it and you realize that actually 
that's how you'd be in that situation if you'd just discovered what Absolutely. she discovered. And but that comes through with, as you say, with an economy of, of effort. I, I would say it was more obvious to me actually when listening. I listened to a little bit of the audio book, and you know the guy was obviously performing your words and was delivering them with uh, with some gusto some, on some occasions uh, from Anne's voice and. Uh, that made me think about it a little bit more, but it was, I, you know, I think you'd got that, you'd put that in my head without me really thinking about it at all, which is a great testament to your sort of economy of language, I think. And it requires an awful lot of skill, but it's so much better when our understanding of character comes from dialogue rather than uh, exposition. Any qualms, Paul, about writing a female character as a lead? I did think about it um, to some extent, and it was a challenge. Um, I didn't want to get her wrong. Um, said so there were sort of two steps to the process. The first was I had to convince myself that it, you could write a character that was of a different sex, and I and I thought about um, Heathcliff, Wuthering Heights, written by a, a young woman, uh, English woman, and I thought about Anna Karenina, a brilliant character written by a middle-aged Russian man. And and then I thought, well, okay, so it's obviously been done really well by many writers. So it's a question then of how do you put yourself in the head of a person? And and I I didn't think of her as a woman. I thought of her as a character, somebody who had yearnings, desires, backgrounds, who would then have to make choices when confronted with difficult situations. So it's really about choice choices and background and her background that you know led her to one choice or another. So I, I I just created the character by virtue of the context she's in, the background that she was raised in, and 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 gave her a moment. You know, the book opens where she has been dumped by her American husband who had brought her to Berlin. She's taken a job as a translator, a job she doesn't like. Mm. but she needs to pay the rent. And she has all of this sort of the, she still has the adolescent dreams that we all have and, and then finds herself at the cusp of adulthood and the banality of life um, as an adult. And she's open to, you know, some affection. She's lonely and um, she's vulnerable. And she was the perfect target for a Stasi agent who was looking to use her as a cover. And, and then it, as she evolves, she discovers that and she discovers her indignation, mm. the fact that she has been used. And she does ask herself, you know, is it possible to love somebody who betrayed you? Because in the moment of love, you did love them. And then later on, you've seen the betrayal, but your feelings were genuine when they were first felt. And so she she goes through her own process of, uh, you know, of understanding herself. And I think by the end, she does something, you know, as a as a young Quaker, she does something that is contrary to who she was raised as. And it's that choice that I think I was interested in exploring. And in the context of a spy novel, you know, it's a little unusual, um, but it was, you know, and, and she had to do what she had to do in order 
you know, the, the story in some ways is uh, revenge and redemption. Um, and, and those are powerful themes. Yeah, there are really a couple of fascinating things there. The first one is that um, it's interesting the way that Anne, once she has the knowledge, once she knows about the fact that her husband has betrayed her and he even has another wife in the East, um, how she then considers and has to think about the love story, um, her love for Stefan and how she feels about the man now. And the other aspect is about um, Anne when she's confronted with all this and she's kind of caught between the East and the German BND security services and the CIA. And she comes to realize that nobody else really cares about her. So it's down to her to make her own decisions. And she does. She decides what she wants to do, what's right for her. The interesting thing is, is that when you're talking about um, characters having agency, was that her agency? You know, was it her who decided that she was going to go her own way? Yeah, she definitely it was it was in her character in the beginning. But, uh, you know, how it played out was was not at all clear until I was sort of in the middle of the book. Um, but, you know, it's the the spy business is very serious business. And the idea, you know, the MI6, CIA, you know, these people are there to provide intelligence to, in the case of us, the president, in order to make difficult decisions about threat, uh, threats to national security, threats to human life. And that's really serious business. But within that business, what you've found is that uh, spies, particularly spies who are operating outside of the territory, the United States or England, um, they're living sort of extrajudicial lives. They're beyond the boundary of law. Um, or they can find themselves with sort of the cover of their work giving them some privileges to do bad things. Mm -hmm. And in my case, in this novel, there is a character like that. Um, and he is, he is, he has his own personal grudges within the agency. And he's, he feels that he has the right to do things that um, probably he shouldn't have done. Um, but it, it's, you know, it's, it, it's a little bit like what happened in World War II. The United States, is, as much as we disliked and, and fought the Nazis and the Japanese, were very eager to take their war criminals if they were scientists after the war and to use them for the benefit of, you know, our own research or our own weapons development. And these, these men and women, you know, were often, um, you know, led, you know, reasonably comfortable lives afterwards, even though they'd been, you know, a part of a war machine. And that's one of the tensions within you know the intelligence community um what do you take advantage of where does where does justice where is the line of justice drawn um and i think it's an interesting question and we see it all the time you know mm -hmm. in, you know in in the contemporary world um so it's it's you know that that was one of the things that i was interested in exploring um in the characters in the novel do you think you'll get more and more contemporary, Paul? Because as you say, each one has come closer up to the present day. Are you likely to do something set now? Or? So the next novel, which is largely written, 
is set in Lebanon in 2006 during the 34-day war between Israel and Hezbollah. So that's more contemporary. The one that I'm playing with now, just in the beginning of the, the very beginning stages of thinking about the novel is set in 2020 in the United States during the Trump election and the disinformation campaign, the compromat that was you know, a big part of the election. So it goes back to Washington. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and politics in Washington, like politics everywhere, is <laughs> full, of, full of spicy, you know, and corrupt uh, figures. And, uh, and that that's always a that's always leads to interesting, exciting and, uh, you know, satisfying uh, stories. Let's move on slightly and talk about what we've been hinting at here, which is the, the literary spy novel and what makes a great literary spy novel. Be curious to know what you think of that. Um, Starting with the point, I think, Paul, that I picked up on something you said in another interview, which is about character punctuated by action. Yeah, I think the literary spy novel is really a story about character uh, and the humanness of the character. Um, and inevitably, um, spies um, do work that can be called dirty work. Um, mm. And they often bring some of that darkness into their own um, character. Um, and I'm interested in the conflict that 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 develops when you know a, a perfectly moral man or woman um, ends up having to do something that then creates um, sort of a crisis in their in their moral um, composition. And it's for me it it it. it Using that as a starting point for a novel came out of uh, a personal story, which um, right. became my third novel, The Coldest Warrior. And my uncle, Frank Olson, happened to be a bioweapon scientist in the U.S. Army and then was uh, uh, moved to the CIA. And he was doing some, some you know, pretty terrible work. Uh, and... And the sort of work that led him to have a moral crisis in his life. But because of the nature of his work, he couldn't share it with his wife. And he couldn't really share his qualms with his colleagues, um, except to, you know, seem to betray the trust mm. among them. So he was cut off. And that this the story is that he was um, murdered. Um, he was given LSD a week before um, his, he was he took to he was taken to New York City, where he fell or jumped from the 13th floor of the Statler Hotel. And all of this is a very famous case, mm -hmm. was withheld from the family until 1975. And, and then the family discovered um, what what had happened. And even though it's, his death remains. Uh, a bit of a mystery. His character became the character that most interested me. Somebody who is in the inside, cut off from his family, can't share the nature of his work with the people he loves, and yet can't confess or 
talk to his colleagues about the nature of the work um, or would seem to be, um, you know, betraying a trust. So that character to me is interesting. And in some ways, it's the characters that you see in Graham Greene, you know, mm. the, 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 the people, characters who have sort of a, a moral quandary that they're dealing with, a conscience that sort of develops in the course of their work. And then the question becomes is how do they deal with it? And what are the choices they make? And it's, it's, it, so it's, it's not by accident that the titles of all my novels are character based, mm-hmm. an honorable man, the good assassin, the coldest warrior, the mercenary, the matchmaker, because it is about character and the stories sort of are, um, you know, about the, the challenges that the work creates in those characters. And I, 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 I chose to title them the way I did because titles to me are a little bit like the lighting in the room. They create this mood that evokes a response in the browser, in a bookstore. And when you have you know, a title of a character or in the case of Graham Greene, and I only thought of this earlier today, many of his novels are also titled by character. Yeah. The Third Man, The Quiet American, A Burned Out Case, The Honorary Council, Our Man in Havana. And it's, you know, I think he does the same thing. He tries to sort of use the title to um, create the impression of a character and the challenges that character confronts. As you say, anybody who's interested in Frank Olson's case, um, the, your third book, The Coldest Warrior, deals with that. And there are a number of factual accounts of, uh, for instance, the Rockefeller Commission, which actually uh, started talking about these secret CIA projects in the 1970s, the stuff that had been going on since the 1950s. A lot of people now will know the term um, MK Ultra, for instance. So we're saying that the literary spy novel deals in the same sort of territory as, as what is called literary fiction as it is at the moment. Um, we're dealing with character, obviously, and it's very personal, and we're dealing with moral and um, emotional dilemmas and the choices people make in uh, very difficult circumstances. And so we find out about their character. Tim, for you, what makes a great uh, spy novel? Well, I think, uh, the, you know, as Paul said, it's all about conflict. I think, I think the great novels have three sorts of conflicts. I think you have the conflict between the principal characters and the, and the other side, I think most of the best ones have conflict between the main character and the people working with him on his own side. Um, yep. You know, you think of, uh, you know, as Paul's talked about, there's a lot of office-based drama. Le Carre's brilliant at, you know, the sort of intricacies of the class system in a British embassy abroad. Or you think about Len Dayton's great Bernard Sampson series. You know, half of that is sort of office intrigue with dreadful mm. people like Dickie Cryer flying about and causing mischief. And you know, Bernard's battle is not so much with the with the KGB as with his own side half the time. And um, and then I think the third level of of conflict is is within the main character themselves. And Paul's kind of addressed that. I think if you're gonna if you can tick all three of those boxes, then you're 
if you've got all of those three things, I think you're getting towards the kind of book that that I like reading. And I think, you know, from reading what Paul writes that he likes reading too. Um, something he said, though, I found very intriguing just now, where he talked about creating that mood in the bookstore. I think, Paul, you've been pretty well served by your cover art for the most part. Um, the Honourable Man's a little bit sort of the uh, silhouette man that uh, appears on most by fiction these days and has now become a running joke from fans. But the uh, the other four are all actually quite striking. And I just wondered whether you have much of a role in that. Um, I also saw a sort of internet video promoting The Honourable Man with some quite striking kind of music and mood. I don't know if you're involved in that. Can you just talk a little bit about how these things are marketed? Because too many publishers seem to just slap a silhouette man on the cover of the book and hope that that's going to be picked up um, by your passing punter. Right. Well, so the 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 last three books have been done by the same artist, um, chosen by my publisher. So I didn't have a choice. Um, they picked the artist. But the artist, I think, did a wonderful job of representing something inside the story. Um, the Falling Man, which was the coldest warrior, um, in the case of the matchmaker, it comes out of you know this guy Marcus Wolf, the man without a face. So it's the hat without <laughs> without a face, and I think did a wonderful job of visually representing something about the story. And I think too often the books that that are out there, they just they're not looking for visual narrative they're looking for visual impact you know colors some sort of a dramatic statement that has nothing to do with what is inside the book um and i do think that's a it's basically lazy cover art cover art that does that that is you know as you said it's it's a joke so the first book, The Honorable Man, I had nothing to do with that. Um, and I think they, you know, it was my first book. And I don't think the publisher spent a lot of money or time developing an interesting, um, you know, visual representation of the book. But I do think, you know, the best uh, titles and the best cover art are are there to intrigue the browser, to to sort of want to make the bookstore browser pick up the book and and open to the first page and read <laughs> the first several lines, which is what I do. If I like a cover, I pick up the book and I read the first you know paragraph or so. And if the language in the first paragraph is good and well done and in some way um, intrigues me, then I'll keep reading. And then if I've read the first page and I like it, I'll buy the book. Um, and I do think when I write, you know, the first page of a book, I really think about that process. What is somebody going to do when they open the book? How are they going to react to the, the first page? And, um, you know, I'm picky. I, I think a lot of people don't, you know, the, one of the, the rule of thumbs is never start a novel with the weather. <laughs> and, and, and so, you know, there are little rules of thumb that, uh, you know, and I like to think that, you know, you need to start the novel with the character and, and maybe name the character and, and leave some, some impression that there's something going on in that character that's interesting. 
Um, and in the case of the matchmaker, it's, you know, you quickly discover she's waiting for her husband and he's late. And that sort of sets up the, the rest of the book in a way. Um, and she's got a, an ambivalent relationship to her husband. And you know all this in the first page. You know, they've argued. Um, she wants a child. He doesn't. She's, you know, and, and those are important things. So I, in some ways, from the very beginning of the novel, you're sort of led into the personalities of the characters that will then develop, you know, in robust ways as the novel goes on. Well, I think time is really catching up with us, so I don't think we're going to get the chance to talk about um, sort of history of, of the uh, spy novel, the literary spy novel, in the way that I was hoping we would. But I do want to talk about um, how now, for instance, with Paul's novel, um, The Matchmaker, we're looking at the Cold War uh, in retrospect. And I wonder what you think of that, Tim, as, a, you know, as opposed to the sort of the Len Dayton and the Le Carre and the other writers that we were reading at the time of the Cold War, how writers are reflecting on the past and what they can bring to it. Well, I think that people like Paul are able to be slightly more morally ambiguous, I think, than perhaps Len Dayton felt able to be during the conflict. I think John Le Carre obviously made a virtue of uh, kind of uh, balancing the two sides and suggesting there was bad being done on both. Um, that was to a lot of people's taste, not to some people's taste. Um but a lot of writers, there were good guys and bad guys and, um, you know, there were shades of grey. But I think um, it's easier to explore that moral ambiguity without having a sort of it being politically laden um, in a way. Mm. But I think it's also just a recognisable state of affairs when you've got spying going on between states. And I think one of the reasons for the revival of some of, uh, of the sort of the genre of spy fiction is down to the fact that we've kind of moved on a bit from the war on terror. I think a lot of people found it quite difficult to empathise with Islamist terrorists. Mm. Um, and some authors did quite well at humanising them and getting inside their heads, but most didn't. Um, and I think it was sort of slightly crazy and inexplicable to a lot of people. And I think it's quite difficult to write a spy novel where you're dealing with a sort of shifting group of terrorists you have to have a terrorist incident that has to be stopped in the same way that you had sort of mole hunt novels with a sort of the acme novel of the of the cold war um you had to have a sort of terrorist plot that had to be stopped and that became slightly repetitive and um, particularly when it was difficult to sympathize uh, with the people on the other mm -hmm. side um now with the return of you know the rise of china and putin being uh newly aggressive i think you know, a lot of authors um, are able to explore, um, you know, those themes in the modern world, but also to look back um, and, they're you know, looking back is relevant again. If you look at the work of someone like Charles Cumming, he's written two books with a sort of split timeline yes. back then and now. And you understand the then because it's still going on now. And I think, you know, that gives vast scope. And it means that while people like Paul and Joe Cannon are writing kind of historical fiction, it has a resonance now that probably it didn't 10 or 15 years mm -hmm. ago. And I think that's a very good thing because it means we're, you know, we're back to themes we recognise, uh, but done in new ways. And that's what's exciting about Paul's writing and, and a lot of other writers too. It's, uh, I think the cold, you know, I do think there's a little bit of nostalgia for the cold war now. And it, oddly enough, we're, we're moving in some ways back to the same state characters of the cold war, but the cold war, had had 
you were able to measure things in a way. You could measure hope, borders, you can measure annihilation. And you also knew that the people on the other side were rational. Um, they had, they, you could sort of reflect on your counterpart uh, and the sorts of dangers that they're, they're willing to take and the limits to which they're willing to, to go. Whereas the war on terror was more ambiguous. You know, violence was stateless or is stateless and it's in some ways seemingly random. And it's upsetting in that way, um, in a way that I, I think Tim is right. It's hard to take that and translate it into a literary novel because the, the, the other side, the bad guys, don't have the sort of recognizable character characteristics that we might find interesting and empathize with. Um, I would say that there are a couple of novelists that have done a good job of representing characters on the other side. David McCluskey, who is a debut novelist, and right. I know that both of you know him, his novel based in Syria has characters who are Syrian. And I think he does a very good job of investing in those characters, a lot of empathy and, and sort of humanness that uh, makes the novel work. Um, in some ways, his Syrian characters are better drawn than his American characters. Um, but I think generally that's been a problem. Um, you know, it's easier for us to write about Russians and Germans than it might be about Iranians. Um, and it may be a cultural you know, divide that we have yet to cross. Um, but I think that's also true, you know, speaking of China, there aren't many novels that deal with the intelligence wars between the West and China. And uh, they may be coming, and yet the intelligence war between China and the West is one of the the major, you know, contemporary dramas um, that we're dealing with. It's not a hot drama, but it's a it's a significant um, economic, uh, political, and cultural drama. Do you fancy having a go at that, Paul? I mean, as you're, you're right, there are very few. Um, Typhoon by Charles Cummings is pretty good, and the, the trilogy by Adam Brooks, I would say, is probably the, the best by a Western author um, getting under the skin of that. But I'd love to see you have a crack at that. Or is that out too far outside your comfort zone? Well, no, it's, I had a grandfather who was a Protestant minister in Shanghai for three or four years in 1914 to 18. So I've always had China in the back of my mind. I've been to Hong Kong. Um, and I happen to have um, two grandchildren who are half Chinese. And, and so I, and my other grandchild is half Korean. So <laughs> I, there's, I have a, a deep interest in that, um, you know, that part of the world. The challenge is creating characters that I can inhabit, and and I haven't yet gone there, but I might. Another aspect of that actually is that we are getting foreign writers or writers outside the British American experience. We're getting Israeli writers and writers from Asia and South America. We're getting writers from Scandinavia writing about the Scandinavian experience of the Cold War. 
you know, and looking at it for right. something that's, that's a bit different to the way we see it. I mean, Finland with its 1400 kilometer border with Russia, it's a very real and alive thing for them that we've often only seen from our own perspective. Um, so there is a lot more interesting stuff and there will be much more coming along, I'm sure, afterwards. But at times flown by, I think we have to sort of wind it up a little bit now. Tim, recommendations. I actually have one thing before we do that. I did notice that Damascus Station by uh, David McCloskey, you jumped that straight into your list for Spybury. Yeah, I mean, I just thought it was, uh, as a debut goes, I think it was pretty remarkable. I, you know, um, I compared it to Red Sparrow, which was mm. you know, another one by an ex-CIA guy that could write, and it was pretty rare to find those. Uh, there's lots of ex-CIA people uh, having to crack at this. Um, not all of them have done it very successfully, but but for the reasons Paul says, he did, because he managed to inhabit those Syrian characters and say something about the dilemmas of living as part of that regime as well as under it. Um, and often you would see the, the the victims under it, but to see the the moral compromises made by the people who had to work for it, I think was extremely effective part of that book. And there's some great tradecraft in it. And yeah, I thought long and hard about putting it in in the list. Um, but uh, I'm hopeful he'll do some more and and, and move higher. Um, but it's you know it's not just one great book. You know, Jason Matthews arguably didn't quite meet that standard with his second and third and. Um, the great thing about someone like Paul is I think he just keeps getting better and better. Um, mm. Certainly the last two have been uh, up there um, with the best things I've read in the last couple of years. So, um, Yeah, absolutely. Any other recommendations? I've spent most of my time sort of going back over old stuff. Um, there's a book um, which I bang on about, which hardly everybody, anybody seems to ha have read, um, uh, called The Soul of Victor Tronco um, by David Quarman, which is a sort of, deep dive um, into, um, it's essentially about um, uh, the Yurinusenko defection um, and whether or not he was for real. Um, and it emerges through sort of interrogation tapes and you get deep into the heart of this guy. Um, and it's a, it's a wonderful uh, sort of exploration of, of that man's character. He was disbelieved, you know, he defected, disbelieved by a lot of the CIA um, who thought that he was a disinformation agent come to uh, muddy the waters um, uh, around um, uh, the guy who defected beforehand. But it's uh, that's a great one. Um, the other contemporary American author, I think he's gone off the boil a little bit, but certainly his first half dozen or so, David Ignatius, is not read nearly right. enough in Britain. I think he's... Um, you know, as I say, the last two or three have been of a lesser quality, but the first six, seven are, are right up there. I think they're absolutely sensationally good. Um, and, you know, they come from a, a, you know, profound seriousness about the subject matter and great characterization, and they're exciting and they've got good plots and there's not much not to like, really. No, I totally agree there. I'll, I'll throw in one, um, Joe Cannon, um, and he's got a new book out. The Berlin Exchange, I think, just published. Um, he and I know each other, and we have lunch from time to time. And when it became apparent that both our books were being released in February and both were set in Berlin, <laughs> we we decided that we would, you know, answer some questions about why Berlin, which of course we've gone over. But uh, he, you know he's a he's a wonderful novelist who I you know I put in the Graham Greene quality. He's this excellent writing, you know, plums the depths of his characters, and, and yet 
um, in addition to being entertaining, he's instructive. Um, and he's, he's a, you know, a very elegant, elegant writer. I was not mentioning him because I didn't think he needed any help, but um, <laughs> I will reveal exclusively to this podcast that Joseph Cannon is the highest ranked um, living author in my list. So, All oh, right. He, uh, we got an exclusive. Go. I wasn't expecting that. He is that. Phenomenal, phenomenally good. And I think, you know, um, when I say you write like him, Paul, that's uh, about as high a compliment as I can pay, to be honest. Oh, well, there we are. You can't say fair. So does, does Joe yet know that you, your opinion of of his work, or is yeah, that he something? can wait and see like everybody else? We're, <laughs> we're only at number thirty. But I won't say where in the list he is, but um, yeah, he is the highest still operating. Let's put it that way. <laughs> okay, well, I want to add a young couple. man. So it was exactly. I hope so. <laughs> I just want to add a couple of things myself, if I can. Um, Sam Eastland, Paul Watkins, in fact, the, the American writer, wrote a book called The Elegant Lie, which is uh, set in Germany just after the war, and I really love that. And, and an odd one, um, Arnaldo Correa, A Spy's Fate, which is a Cuban book, Cuban spy story. It was published by Akashic in America, uh, probably not even published in the UK. But it, it's one that I like because it just has that totally different perspective on things. Um, and a new writer actually mentioned James Wolfe, actually. I like the way that James Wolfe is trying to do something really original. And uh, one of the funny things about James Wolfe's books is, um, he's, in the context of the things we've been saying, writes about bureaucracy and he makes it incredibly interesting. It's a, it's a bizarre comment on the book. Most people say, avoid the bureaucracy, you know, the actual physical paperwork and so on. He finds a way of making that quite fascinating in his books. Yeah, I read um book. How to Betray Your Country. In yeah. fact, he was one of the authors who sent me his book. Um, ah. <laughs> and I'm glad he did, because I think it's very, very good indeed. Um, and I, he got a wild card into my list. Um, I'd already drawn up the list by the time he, he got his book to me. But that's, uh, yeah, I think it's very, very, very promising indeed. Um, I hope he keeps going for a long time as well. And on that note, we'll leave it. Paul Vidic, Tim Shipman, that's been brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. I want to say a big thank you to Tim Shipman and to Paul Vidic for that uh, fascinating chat about spy fiction. The Matchmaker is published by No Exit Press and it's out now. I also want to say I went to Berlin after the fall of the wall and I really recognised that city that Paul was writing about in uh, the book. And uh, the contrast between East and West was quite incredible, even though I'd read all those books, I knew that story. But to actually see bullet holes where buildings had been strafed nearly 50 years before uh, was still an incredible sight. The greyness in contrast to the vibrancy of the West. I went with my father for the Berlin Marathon and it was the first time he'd been back there since the late 50s. His regiment used to do guard duty on Spandau Prison when uh, Hess was there and of course uh, at the time von Schirach and um, Albert Speer as well. I'll be back with another interview very shortly. But for now, bye and thank you very much for listening. (laughs) 